0: Tuned in to How To OT, where it's our goal to make research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. As always, I'm your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Wanda Mahoney about working with clients who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. She gives clinical recommendations that can be applied to practitioners working in a school setting a hospital setting, or any setting. Let's get to it. Okay, today I'm here at Washington University in St. Louis with Dr. Wanda Mahoney. Thank you for joining me. Um, Dr. Mahoney is a PhD, a licensed occupational therapist, and has been a part of a lot of research focused on participation with children youth, and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities in the home, school, and the community. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Mahoney.
1: Thank you for
0: inviting me. Yeah, of course. I guess to kind of give our listeners a little bit of background on your research and your expertise, what was maybe what led you to, to, to research what you are currently researching? Uh, so
1: very much came out of a little practice. Um, I have been working with individuals with developmental disabilities for my entire career and really wanting to make sure that their voices were heard and that I wasn't seeing very much of that in the research that was out there, Um, especially for individuals with more significant cognitive impairments, which were really the clients that I felt the closest to and really um, felt like that I was able to make the biggest impact with. And so I think that really making sure that we as occupational therapy practitioners have ways to um, capture their voices and deal with some of their um, participation and occupational
0: engagement issues. Yeah. That, that's awesome. I love how your, your clinical practice really inspired your research. Um, and it sounds like you've really had the best intentions for this entire population at, at heart. And uh, what you what you've done in the research realm, I think, can really help to uh, improve the occupational engagement and overall well-being of people who have developmental disability.
1: That would certainly be a broad goal. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: can we can we start talking about the difference between developmental disability and intellectual disability?
1: Um, sure. So developmental disabilities a broad category term. So it includes cognitive and physical disabilities um, that begin in what they call the developmental period, which is typically seen as before 18, that so varies depending on the definition. So chronic condition is expected to last throughout life and really impacts people's participation. So that's just a broad overarching, really category conditions of developmental disability and then um, intellectual disability is one specific type of developmental disability and so there's actually a formal diagnostic procedure for an intellectual disability and um, like things like the um, diagnostic statistical manual that the um, the APA puts out has specific criteria for it. The American Association of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities has specific diagnostic criteria. And so then we're really looking at um, cognitive abilities and thinking about what they call intellectual functioning. And so again, there's those pieces of it starts prior to age 18. It's expected to last indefinitely. It impacts people's participation but it's really a significant
0: cognitive impairment. Awesome, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. It makes the the distinguishing factors very clear um, and easy to understand, so thank you. And I I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that in your clinical uh, practice, you worked a lot with uh, individuals who had developmental disability and intellectual disability. What uh, setting were you practicing in?
1: Um, so I really worked with individuals across the lifespan. So I've worked in um, early intervention with very young kids. Um, and then kids rarely have a formal diagnosis. It's pretty much developmental delay at that point. Um, and I've worked in different um, school settings, uh, primarily um, private separate day schools. Um, so really those those schools... Um, that children are going to because their needs aren't being met in the um, regular um, like home schools and so I was working with kids with pretty significant um, disabilities and then I've also worked with several um, community programs both in individuals' homes and in like different day programs and things like that
0: specifically for
1: adults with developmental
0: disabilities. Very cool. So a lot of a lot of different practice settings. And I wanted to ask, what practice settings are occupational therapy practitioners seeing adults with intellectual disabilities the most, do you think?
1: I would say probably schools. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are a lot of OT practitioners who are working in the schools, um, and that um, a lot of um, children and youth with intellectual disability would have IEPs and potentially have OT as a related service that they are receiving there. I think when we talk about adults with developmental disabilities, it's a lot um, more infrequent that OT practitioners are working with this population. Um, I've actually seen a lot of instances of occupational therapy assistants who are working in those kinds of programs to where their job is not as an OT, but they're residential program managers or, um, you know, activity coordinators or things like that. So definitely using their OT
0: background um, in this more community role. Awesome. Uh, I believe in one of your studies, uh, you found that a lot of practitioners also end up working with individuals who have intellectual disability due to a comorbid, con- comorbid condition. Um, How do you recommend a practitioner can address an individual's intellectual disability while still focusing on the comorbid condition that they initially came to receive services for? So I think that as um, healthcare has
1: changed in the last, I would say, 20 years, there's a lot more adults and older adults with developmental disabilities than there ever have been in the past. And that they they actually age at an earlier, like have um, age-related changes at an earlier age Mm. than the typically developing population. And so so they're having things like heart disease and diabetes and hip replacements and even dementia um, potentially at earlier ages. And and they're going into skilled nursing facilities or into the hospital. Or things like that. And I think that um, OT practitioners in that area um, kind of forget that they know how to work with this population because it's so different from who they're used to typically seeing. And so I think it's a matter of reminding them that they do have this skill set and that it is a little challenging, especially in those acute hospital settings where things are really fast paced. Um, but I think it's I don't think that as OT practitioners we deal, like, we directly address people's conditions. I think we're addressing their participation and what's impacting their participation. And so it's just recognizing that, like, individuals with intellectual disabilities have long-standing cognitive impairments that are impacting their participation and maybe. You know, just like it's stressful for anybody to be in the hospital. Like it's going to be incredibly stressful um, for individuals who have difficulty communicating or difficulty understanding novel situations to deal with that. And so I think knowing that, like EOT practitioners can really help with that, just dealing with the, with the hospital environment mm-hmm. um, and really trying to figure out what people's prior level of functioning was, um, I think that that's a big, a big challenge because they may never have been independent in, especially their health. and so figuring out what was their baseline so you have a sense of what are we trying to get back to, and I think that people can kind of go, like, in extremes in either direction, like, in thinking about, like, well, how are we going to get back to independent functioning when that was never where they were at? to the other extreme of, like, well, I have an intellectual disability, so I can't do anything, and so there's nothing we can do. And it's like, okay, we've got to meet somewhere in the middle here, because um, I've had a lot of caregivers tell me that I really had to explain to the medical staff that this is not how they typically are. Like something is medically wrong. This is not their intellectual disability. This is not how they typically behave or present. And I think that that's really challenging in medical sites because while well, so OT practitioners have this knowledge base of working with people with developmental disabilities that they can like think back on and draw from, most medical professionals don't. Nurses and doctors don't typically get this information as part of their typical training. And so they may not even have a baseline of background knowledge to pull from.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of factors that come into play when an OT is working with someone who has a developmental disability in, you know, more of a hospital type setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way you describe it, it sounds like it's almost a a temptation to, to... use one of the extreme approaches that, that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes sense because in another one of your studies, you found that 93% of practitioners um, reported that working with older adults who have developmental disability was challenging.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we know challenging isn't always a bad thing, but that's a pretty high number, mm-hmm. um, especially for a field that has a background in working with um, with this population. Yeah. Um, and I just I want to interrupt you. Absolutely. We're we're switching back and forth between intellectual disability and developmental disability, which
1: I think is fine, but just Mm -hmm. to clarify, like that, I think that there absolutely are also, say, adults with cerebral palsy, which would be considered a developmental disability, who are going into the hospital, and medical professionals are assuming that they have cognitive impairment, and they may not. And so, to really make sure that that information is being pulled apart, and to really, this, the thing that I think is a really key theme across occupational therapies to assume competence. And to really think about, like, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that um, this person is getting what they need, and that um, that they are sharing the information that they want to share. And sometimes that requires very minimal accommodation, and sometimes it requires pretty significant accommodation. Um, but to go in and make sure that we are assessing how much support do they need in order to um, share what they need to share and get what they need um, in this medical realm or in, you know, out of the community. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And, and you're touching on this. I want to ask uh, a little bit more. You mentioned identifying prior level of functioning and really identifying what someone's needs are what are maybe some other things that practitioners can do to be more confident in working with people um who have let's just throw them both together now developmental disability or intellectual disability Mm -hmm.
1: so i think that um Especially, I think, if a person has an intellectual disability. So if they have a cognitive impairment, if there's something in their medical chart which won't always be in their medical church, that um, they have this um, coexisting condition, um, I think that it's recognizing that, like, I probably am going to need to take a little bit more time with this person than I typically typically would, especially for that initial evaluation to really think about, like, okay, I need to figure out how do they communicate and um, and, and sometimes it's, you know, there are no communication issues, but like you've got to uh, to assess that. Like, how can I make sure that I can get information from this individual? And I'm a strong proponent of everybody can communicate. Um, Like, it's just a matter of us figuring out a mechanism to make that happen and really interpreting um, what people are telling us potentially not verbally um, and really you know asking questions in a way that people can understand them and can give us um, that kind of information
0: like i potentially went off on a tangent and maybe we can circle back to the question yeah, yeah that's a good tangent Though communication really is key in all treatment and especially in working with with this population um but yeah again the question was just specific things practitioners can do um, or that you might recommend they do to, to be more confident in working um, with clients who have developmental or intellectual disability. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that, again, I think that with a developmental disability, you, you want to just go and start like asking questions and seeing how people are responding to that because you don't want to assume that people have a cognitive impairment. But if people aren't answering the questions, I think reframing them, potentially simplifying them. Another big thing, I mean, like, you're a stranger going in to, to see this person. And so sort of really giving them time to respond. Um, one of the things that, uh, one of the uh, clinicians that I work with, who years ago was one of my students, still talks about one of the things that I, taught her was you know you go and you ask your question and you sit there and you count for 10 seconds before you ask it again before you do something and she's like that's such an incredibly long time <laughs> yeah. but it's like you've got you've got to make sure that you've gotten their attention first so oftentimes when we're talking to people we'll say like oh hey can you bring me that map mm-hmm. and like you know, until you've said the person's name, they're not necessarily attending to you. And so you've got to start with their name, make sure you've got their attention and then give your like request or your introduction. And so Matt, hey, can you give me that? You know, that that like small bit of change in how you're framing stuff, which takes a deliberate like thought process, is important because the person may not even notice that you're talking to them until you say their name. Um, and again, that waiting, um, giving them an opportunity to um, to respond, um, to be patient with that. And again, sometimes you really are like counting to yourself. If that isn't working, like either writing down, like, giving people a mechanism to to um, answer that isn't only verbal. And so you know whether that is showing people objects. If you got pictures of things. You know, if you're even writing down simple words to just give people a way to answer that isn't just
0: verbal. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is the, the type of learning and, and expertise I love hearing. Just like very clear clinical things that, you know, we can apply in any setting. Uh, so, thank you very much. In in your work, you, you mention also how individuals with intellectual disabilities are a marginalized population, um, and you touched on this earlier, how part of why you got into this research was wanting to give this population more of a voice, um, and some of the barriers restricting their opportunities put them at risk for occupational alienation and even a decreased sense of competence. Can you talk to us more about these kind of barriers? So I think that um, you know a lot of times we focus on you know somebody's cognitive
1: abilities as their barrier, mm-hmm. and I kind of just set that aside and say okay yeah that's just part of what's going on, but that's not the part that's going to change. And so really thinking about like what kind of opportunities do they have to have a say in their own lives. Like how much do they really get an opportunity to act as self-determined beings? You know how much, and if somebody's got a pretty significant um, disability, how the environment is set up is an incredible, incredibly important piece of that. And um, so, really thinking about so even when I'm thinking about those, those person factors of self-determination or volition or occupational skills. I'm always thinking about how is the environment set up to foster that. And not just the physical environment, I think that's a piece of it, but I think our really, really, really key component for the population is the social support. And so whether that is family or paid staff or community members, but like how do people around them assume competence? How do people around them... Provide a mechanism for them to communicate what they want. How do people around them listen when they are communicating what they want? Um, and again, that communication may not be totally clear, may not be totally verbal, but people let us know what they want and don't want. And how much do we, like, listen and respond to that? And I think, and I, I mean, we as a broader, like, humanity kind of thing. Um, and I think that Making sure that family caregivers and staff and teachers and things really have tools to um, to bring that about, I think is, a, is is some of the most important things to really address how people are able
0: to engage in occupations that are more Absolutely, absolutely, and if, if a client or if a practitioner rather observes kind of a disconnect or an environmental barrier with a caregiver or family or social support, how would you recommend they go about addressing that?
1: Yeah, I think that that's obviously a challenge. Um, I think, I personally think it's hardest with um, family members because they have a really long-standing relationship and way of doing things. And, like, you really can't go in and tell, like, a parent that they're doing something wrong. So I I think that that is is really challenging. And I think, you know, talking to them about um, what you're seeing and what you're seeing maybe when, especially when a parent does something differently, that you can then comment on, wow, when you did it this way, did you notice how they responded differently kind of thing. I think with staff members, um, it's a little bit easier because there is a mechanism of like expectation that this is your job kind of thing. But I also think that, um, a lot of times, uh, direct care staff members are, they're incredibly underpaid and it, it can be difficult, difficult work and, um, they get very limited training. And so again, it's not, it's not a blaming situation it's really an educational opportunity to really show them other ways to do to do this like giving them ways within the resources that they have to offer support potentially in different ways I think that in the staff members that I have seen are really good at um, providing somebody with materials and stepping away and letting the person do whatever it is that they're supposed to do with those materials. So basically, doing some minimal setup, and then the person can independently engage. They're good with that, and they're good with the person who needs like full-on hand-over-hand assistance to do something. Um, they know how to do that. Anything in between, they really don't don't know. How to offer support in an in-between, how to grade the amount of assistance, how to adapt the activity so that somebody can partially participate. Like what are, the, like, and that's I think is a place where we can really show that. And, and also I think that a key thing I think with any caregiver is to really talk to them about how you're not asking them to do more, you're asking them to do things differently and that it will make it easier for them. And so you really gotta get that buy-in piece. It's not like what can you do more for this individual? It's about like what can we do to change this dynamic so that it's a better experience for the individual with an intellectual disability. It's also a better experience for you as a caregiver. Because when you are doing things together as this like co-occupational experience, we are both getting something out of it. Like that's a beautiful thing to watch. And um, and I think to let them know that the the things that I'm showing you or suggesting that you do are not designed to make it harder for you. It's not designed to make it more for you to do. It's to give you a way to um, to deal with this dynamic and to get more out of it personally.
0: Absolutely. So it sounds like the way you frame the approach really has an impact on. I guess, on caregiver compliance or if they're going to be willing to to change things up. So I think framing is really important. And then also that education piece, activity grading, task analysis. These are like core skills of OT that we can really share uh, with caregivers. Um, so thank you so much. Those are awesome recommendations. Let's see. Well, on additional study you were uh, the primary investigator on I wanted to mention Uh, You found in this one that people with intellectual disability demonstrate their engagement and occupation kind of in uh, unique ways. Things you identified were initiating action, expressing positive affect, and showing focused attention. Can you talk to us about these differences in expression and demonstration of engagement um, and then maybe how they can be used in intervention as well?
1: And so, um, in that study, I was really, I was working in a day program for individuals with developmental disabilities, and um, I actually recruited the adults that I was working with through the staff members, and I was really asking the staff members, who are the folks who are really difficult to get involved in the activities? Who are the people that you're just not really sure how to work with? And those were the folks who I wanted to get their perspective and really see what was going on for them in their group activities. Mm-hmm. And so what I found was that, and when I talk about engagement in this sense, I'm talking about it a little bit more specifically than potentially we talk about it. I think that most of the time we don't define what we're saying. <laughs> we yeah. talk about engaging in applications. And really most of the time what we mean is just doing mm-hmm. And I wanted to get more into that, um, like, how am I showing that something's important to me? What are the um, types of things that I'm doing that I'm really getting into it? Mm -hmm. Um, And um, what does that look like for individuals with intellectual disability? I think that it's not so much that it's unique to them, I think that... Most of the time, when, we, when, when we're when we really into something, you know, we talk about flow. We talk about, like, you know, somebody expressing,
0: like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for those folks who maybe don't have
1: that capability to talk about those inst- internal states of engagement, like, how can we capture that? And what should we be looking for to say these are indicators that they're really into it? And so, you know, so it seems like pretty simple behaviors, but in combination, you know, there is some aspect of, you know, they are doing something to engage in this, so they are initiating actions, and again, likely not doing the whole thing by themselves, but you know, they're reaching for objects, they are, um, you know, in that focused attention, like they're watching what's going on. And. You know, expressing positive affect, you know, making pleasurable noises or smiling, um, or laughing or things like that, that in that combination, like they're showing us, this is really cool. Like yeah. I'm really into this. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, sometimes they show us really strongly, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not want to do this. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes they're showing, showing us that by like, throwing things or doing things that, you know, people are labeling as challenging behavior. And it's like, you know what? They're just telling you super strongly, I don't want to do this. And are you listening? And it's like, yes, we want them to have other ways to tell you that. But if you're not listening, even when they're telling you this in that extreme way, like, they're doing everything they can to tell you this sucks. (laughs) And you're you're not responding to that. And so they're just gonna continue to escalate and so giving them other ways to say, This sucks, I don't want to do this. But I think that that showing staff members then, like when they're doing this, these are the things to look for to let you know like that they're they're getting into the activity and then don't drag it away. (laughs) You know, and when you're doing, you know, this. They're trying to tell you, "I don't want to do this." I'm trying to notice that before it escalates, so that you are like, "Okay, let's take this away. Let's let's offer them a choice. Let's give them another way to do this." One, um, when we talk about like clinical relevance and things like that, um, the the tool that I use to capture some of this actually is an, an OT assessment tool. Um, it's called the Volitional Questionnaire.
0: It's not a questionnaire. It's an observational tool, okay, um, and it's
1: really designed for capturing this kind of information for somebody who typically isn't able to just tell us, like, what are the things that they're showing us that tell us they're really motivated to engage in this activity. And so I found that to be a really useful tool that I actually was not aware of until I began doing my research.
0: That's awesome. Thank you for bringing up that specific tool. If possible, we'll link it in our episode description on the podcast. So listeners as well can can use it um, on their own. Um, And again, all that ties back into how important communication is, Mm -hmm. uh, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, Another barrier that People with intellectual disability receiving services face is that traditional reimbursement, um, rewards interventions that, as you put it, um, in your research, fix impairment. And intellectual disability is a permanent condition, a chronic condition, um, and not something that can really be medical, medically cured. What value can occupational therapy bring to the life of someone with intellectual disability despite this barrier?
1: Mm-hmm. And so I think that has to do with um, kind of where where are these services being um, being uh, provided, and I think that there are some mechanisms to um, to get some funding through um, Medicaid waiver programs and um, through different um, funding mechanisms with different programs. Um, it's not typical like insurance type funding, um, and I think I mean there are habilitation aspects of uh, typical insurance, but I think that you're you're going to have a hard time making the case for like training caregivers and training staff as habilitation, even though that really is fostering skill development for the individuals with um, intellectual disability. So I think that that's certainly a barrier. And I think that most of the time when OTs are working under a traditional reimbursement mechanism with this population is because of a coexisting condition, because they were, you know, they had a hip replacement or, you know, they are admitted to the hospital for sometimes um, something as simple as a UTI that's gotten out of hand and is now causing, um, like, cognitive changes and stuff. And so, so then, so then you're really working on like, okay, well, how are they doing with, um, you know, following hip precautions and things? And I think that every OT who works with, you know, something like, you know, something like hip precautions is pretty standard in what kinds of things you're going to have people do. It's like something that you anticipate using to, to have visuals for that. Cause that would probably help a lot
0: of people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Not just those individuals with intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. Of like, you know, reminders posted on people's walls about like, what are these movements I'm supposed to be avoiding? And what are the things that I can do? What should I be doing? Um, Not just what I not do. Um, So, and I think that um, in terms of the value that boutique can bring, I think that um, we have a lot of that can work at a larger level, more so than on this one-to-one individual funding reimbursement kinds of things. And I think that there's a lot of interesting um, things around. I mean, like when I worked with programs for adults with developmental disabilities, it's because it's part of a larger organization that I was employed by, and like my primary role was with the school. But then they also had this adult program that I was like, but can I also work over there a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) And I was able to work something out so that I did. And sometimes that was like reimbursed through the state and sometimes it wasn't. Um, And so I was constantly having to advocate with my um, supervisors about kind of this value added piece and, you know, doing staff trainings and things like that. Um, I also think that there is a really important role with that that, strip, that staff training component. And I think that, um, you know, having somebody to come in to really show, like, how to provide different levels of support because there has been research that shows like it's not just the, the, the classroom training per se, like, yes, you need that, but you also need the in the moment suggestions, like in the room with the person. I'm like, okay, but how can I do this? Situ- you know, how do I deal with this situation? And that combination is what's really most effective in creating change for staff members. That's not research that I did, that's um, just other research that I've used.
0: I think it did. I think it, at the very least, gave us a, an expert's perspective and opinion um, on the question. So thank you very much for that. And Dr. Mahoney, you've also done a lot of work um, or research with uh, people who have intellectual disability in the workforce. Um, in one of your studies, you, you point out that unemployment rate is twice as high uh, for this population. What do you think practitioners should know about their clients in order to help them find employment, if that's a, a desire or a goal that they have?
1: So I haven't done as much work with people who are um, in the workforce. I have done I've done a little bit, and I think that most of the work that I've I've done hasn't been so much with the acquisition of employment as for who people who have their jobs and like what kind of um, supports do they need. In that um, position. And so, um, but I think that uh, something that I haven't mentioned, but I think is important, is recognizing that there's a broader, like, community and societal stigma against um, this population. And I think that um, addressing that on a very broad scale um, is something that I think OT can contribute to because I think that. Um, obtaining employment is a challenge for this population, especially. Um, I think that when I work with youth, um, you know, we're working a lot on um, what could be called social skills, because those soft skills of like how do you interact with coworkers, how do you respond to people giving you directions, those kinds of things are the reasons why people with intellectual disability get fired. If, they, if they're not able to maintain their job. The other piece, the other reason too why I think this is a big issue for youth is that there's been quite a few studies that have shown like one of the factors that helps adults with intellectual disability have a job is that they actually worked in high school. So if they have a job in high school, they're much, much, much more likely to have a job as a young adult. Yeah. And so, having that work experience, preferably paid work experience, I <laughs> that we have to be really, really careful about um, volunteering when it's volunteering that somebody else would get paid to do. And so, so I think that those are things to to really think about. I think that there's some really cool models around um, job creation of really figuring out what it is the person wants to do. And kind of creating um, a role around that, I think that there's, um, I think increasingly there's there's been a push for creating businesses whose goal is really to provide individuals with developmental disabilities an opportunity to work. A lot of different cafes and things like that that are job training programs as well as employers um, and. So I think that I'm quite frankly not sure what I think about that model. Um, I think that you know, there were some recent legislative changes that have really um, downplayed or um, restricted, essentially, the use of sheltered workshops as a place for individuals with intellectual disabilities to work, that there's really a policy push for people to be working in the community in competitive employment. Um, But how much that's backed up by what kind of supports are available to support somebody in that competitive employment and to prepare them for that competitive employment, I'm not really clear about. um, But I think that The main OT practitioners who need to be addressing this are those working with high school students and even middle school students because I think that um, when we're talking about individuals with intellectual disability that we know it takes them a long time to learn a new skill. Like we, they, then we need to give them a long time to learn a new skill. And it's not to say what you said you wanted to do in seventh grade is what you're going to be doing when you're 25 but that middle school is also a place to be working on some of these social skills that absolutely positively translate into the job environment, and that high schools are a really key place to be working
0: on it. Awesome. Again, that theme of uh, really identifying external supports and environmental supports, uh, which is an expertise of OT, uh, comes into play um, as, as something we can do uh, when working with this population. Um, so thank you so much let's see, we're almost to the end here I want to ask you if you would maybe like to share a clinical example of how your research or how your practice um, informed really best practice and then maybe a a good experience you've had in working with uh, this population Mm -hmm.
1: Um, so one of the ones that um, is a more recent experience that comes to mind is a high school student that I was working with who had a really severe cognitive impairment and coexisting autism, and I was really um, working with her to really figure out like what are what are things that she enjoys doing because the teacher couldn't even tell me like what is she like to do other than put her fingers in her mouth. Like okay. We can broaden this. I'm quite confident that we can find some other things. And to really think about, like, you know, her, her mom loved her very much, loves her very much. Didn't really see anything that she could do, like that, that, um, that this student could do. And so that was one of my kind of informal goals is to really identify, um, something that this student could do that then she could really show off and show everybody what she could do. And, you know, so I was working with her on really, like, starting at making choices and just to give her some some opportunities to try some different things. And, I mean, it really was starting at the very beginning, of like, teaching her what it meant to make a choice. And so I was, I was showing her pictures, sometimes kind of objects, just two at a time to get her to choose it. And then she would choose it, and we would go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and found out she, she liked going places. Um, we, she would choose to go for a walk, and so we would go and just walk a little bit around the school. One of the things that really showed me that she wanted to go places is that she would go up to a very small school, and the parking lot was right next to the school, and she would behind, so we would walk through the parking lot, and she would go up to the cars and start trying to open the doors. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually took public transportation to go to a school most days, and be like, that's not my car. That's not my car. Yeah. <laughs> and be totally honest, because my car would not be in the parking lot. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so, um, so, but to be able to share that, to say, well, she really loves going places. That was not something that we could do. One of my happiest days in this school was the day, like, it was right towards the end of the school year, and I found this, like, secret closet that had a washer and dryer in it. And I was like, oh my gosh, how have I not known that this has been here this whole school year? And who do I need to talk to to get permission to use it? <laughs> Because this would be something else cool to try mm-hmm. to see. And uh, and it turns out, again, it took, like, I mean, I worked with her for several years. Um, But the next school year that I had another activity that I could offer to her. And it turns out that she actually loved doing laundry. Like, and so, like, and because she did put her fingers in her mouth so much, like, we really had to figure out what part of the laundry task she could do. And, you know, we weren't going to have her dealing with the laundry detergent at all. like that just wasn't going to be safe. We really weren't going to have her dealing with the clean towels at all. Because basically, once she touched them, they were no longer clean. <laughs> <laughs> but loading the washing machine was something that she could totally do. And, like, she literally was choosing. Like, she got to where she really was making choices. And the first couple of times she did it, I was kind of like, really? Like, she chose laundry over something else that I, like, knew she liked. And I was like, and I mean, they, I didn't really test it. I was like, well, we could do laundry, or we could, like, have a piece of chocolate.
2: And she's choosing laundry. <laughs> yeah. I <was> like, what? <laughs> That's impressive. That's impressive. But then we took photographs of it, of her doing this,
1: and I was able to show her mom and, and, like, made a little book. Of her like doing laundry and showing her like what she really can contribute to the household in this way. Like that was really powerful for the student, for mom. And again, it took like a year and a half yeah. um, to get to that point. But I think, but I was always assuming competence. I was trying a different ways to give her um, choices and we were we were following through on them and I one of my key things was figuring out what does she enjoy. There's gotta be things that she enjoys. Um, and then how can you take those things she enjoys and put them into like a functional um, context that really could impact her her life long term. And so I think that was a key piece. Do I have time for one more?
0: Absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so the other one that I specifically wanted to mention is more back in that medical realm mm-hmm. and um, I worked with two clinicians on um, some of this work um, Minerva Cruces and Lydia Bruneau and really figuring out like what are some resources for OT practitioners who are working with um, this population especially in like those medical settings well um, Minerva actually worked with the hospital that she um, is employed by and, um, joined an interprofessional team that was really, uh, in the process of designing resources for the staff to really provide high quality care to kids with autism. And, um, that program has really developed over the past couple of years. And, uh, and I think it's a really nice implementation of of the programming and projects that we did earlier that also built on um, the project that you mentioned about the 93% of OTs mm-hmm. um, who mentioned that they've worked with this population. And So um, I actually did that project with a couple of students at the time who are now um, practicing clinicians, uh, Jenny Zavaias and Serena Mir.
0: Um, and I guess... This kind of leads to to the next question, where, um, or like what resources would you recommend to our listeners and and where can they find some of these resources?
1: Um, so I think that the resources that I just specifically referred to are still very much in the development stage. Um, but if you are interested in providing us with feedback on them, (laughs) um, we're definitely hoping to restart that research project. um, Contact me. But, um. I think that the first place, I think, is um, the American Occupational Therapy Association, the Developmental Disabilities Special Interest Group. Um, I was involved with that um, special interest group for quite a while and still um, tangentially were involved with it. Um, and I think that um, we really advocated pretty hard to maintain developmental disabilities as a special interest group when they did the restructuring a few years ago because it's not just children and youth. And so really recognizing developmental disabilities across the lifespan and really needing a place for um, OTs to be able to share resources with each other and um, to ask questions and things like that, that I think if it is assumed under children and youth, those who are working with individuals with um, developmental disabilities who are adults or older adults don't know where to go. Um, so I'm hoping that that group is able to maintain itself as a, a separate entity in the special intersection structure. Another really helpful resource is the American Association of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. I think they've got a lot of informational resources um, and uh, some of their um, publications are especially useful to OTs. I think that very few of them are written by OTs, um, and I think that it's it's an organization that I hope that more, more OTs will connect with, um, but I think that there's there's a lot of uh, useful things that are coming out of that.
0: Group. Awesome. Thank you so much, and we'll have those linked in, uh, in our episode description uh, as well. And I guess last question. I always like to end with this question. I call it the golden nugget segment. If you could tell practitioners one thing about working with this population or just about practice in general, uh, what would it be?
1: I think that, um, it's recognizing that individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities, regardless of their severity of, um, impairments are occupational beings. And have occupational lives. And we need to make sure that we are working with this population that we are doing things to promote their occupational life. And sometimes that's not going to be about so much their quality of performance, but really about like how do they have the supports that they need to engage in the things that are important to them. And how do they have a mechanism to share what's important to them and what's enjoyable to them? And I think
0: that if OTs are doing that, that that would be phenomenal. I would think so, too. Awesome. Well, Wanda, thanks again so much for your time um, and for sharing your expertise and your research and your clinical experience as well. Um, Hearing those stories was, was really neat for me. I know, and I'm, I'm sure it is for our listeners as well. Hey, I'm on vacation every
2: single day because I love my occupation. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, 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 I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day vacation every single day cause I love my occupation and, ay, I'm on vacation every single day every every single day everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies do the shit So thankful for everything, rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need. Open arms, embracing life, and all the what you gave me. I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me. Close my eyes, sometimes i feel as if I blow away. I love the life I live and enjoy the ride along the way. I'll make a living out of living, yeah, that's what I say. I got one life to live and I wouldn't live in no other way. hey, I'm on vacation. you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it